0: Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. In 1964, a young Pan Am co pilot named Frank Williams entered LaGuardia Airport with an air of confidence. He nodded warmly to the other pilots and stewardesses as he passed and strolled through security with a brief flash of his security badge. He was a well-known figure in the terminal, greeted warmly by all the flight personnel he encountered. Williams approached the desk of Eastern Airlines and requested a flight to Miami. This wasn't unusual. It was a common courtesy for airlines to offer free tickets to all pilots, regardless of what company they worked for. After a quick look at his Pan Am ID card and his certified pilot's license, he was quickly ushered aboard the next available flight. Frank settled into the jump seat, located next to the cockpit, where the rest of the crew was seated. He engaged in friendly banter with the stewardesses and the other pilots on board while the final checks were prepared. Then, the captain picked up his headpiece and radioed the Federal Aviation Administration, or FAA, tower. Frank's heart froze as he overheard the pilot explain that they had a Pan Am pilot on board with them. The captain listened for a moment, then nodded at Frank. They had the all clear. Frank let out a deep breath as the plane raced down the runway and lifted off. If the FAA tower had requested more information about the unexpected guest on their flight, they might have discovered that the 26-year-old Frank Williams didn't exist. The man sitting on their plane was Frank William Abagnale Jr. A 16-year-old runaway with nothing more than a fake ID card and a stolen pilot's uniform. Their newest flyer wasn't just a criminal. He was one of America's most notorious con artists. Welcome to Con Artists, a podcast original. I'm Alastair Murden. Every week, we peel back the layers of history's greatest deceptions and tell the stories of the hustlers, swindlers, and fraudsters that orchestrated them. I'll dive into their psychology, break down their tricks, and explain why anyone might fall for a con. You can find episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Con Artists for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. This is our first episode on Frank Abagnale, a scamming wunderkind who became one of America's most ingenious con artists during his five-year career. This week, we'll learn about Frank's early start in crime, from high school delinquent to skilled forger. We'll also see how he became a master imposter, crafting new identities for himself as a pilot, lawyer, and even a doctor. Next week, we'll hear how Frank evaded capture and went on the run, where he continued pulling small cons and fraud until his eventual arrest. In only five years, Frank Abagnale Jr. managed to cause a major stir in the criminal world. After running away from home at 16, Frank survived on forged checks until he created a new identity for himself as a Pan Am pilot. He stayed one step ahead of the authorities for two years, flying over 250,000 miles and scamming hotels and airlines all over the country out of thousands of dollars. After a close call with the FBI, Frank evaded capture using a slew of new identities before returning to his roots in check forgery. By the time he was first arrested in 1969, he had become a master con artist. But Frank was given a second chance when he was recruited to work for the FBI. There he served as a security consultant long after his sentence was completed to make up for all the trouble he caused. Frank Abagnale Jr. wasn't a typical teenage runaway. He actually grew up in a comfortable middle-class home in Westchester, New York in the 1950s. His father, Frank Abagnale Sr., ran a successful stationery store in Midtown Manhattan, while his mother took care of the family and the home in the suburbs. Frank was close to both of his parents, but he had a special bond with his dad. However, while things seemed happy from the outside looking in, the illusion of the happy Abagnale family was shattered when Frank was only 12. His parents separated in 1960, leaving their children caught in the middle. Devastated by the rift in his marriage, Frank Sr. begged his son to help him convince his mother to come back to the family. But, despite Frank Jr.'s best efforts, his parents officially divorced two years later, when he was 14. In the aftermath of his parents' separation, Frank went to live with his father, while the rest of his siblings stayed with his mother. This fracture in his family had a profound effect on Frank. According to a study conducted by the Vrije Universiteit in Amsterdam, children with divorced parents are more likely to commit non-violent crimes than those whose parents stay together. There are a number of reasons why this may be, including a sudden lack of parental oversight, a newly fraught family structure and, in some cases, because the child is attempting to unite their parents with a common goal, worrying about their behaviour. It's unclear which of these may be applicable to Frank Abagnale, but being caught in the middle of his mother and father's divorce was undoubtedly a source of emotional stress for adolescent Frank and this only marked the beginning of the upheaval he'd experience. Life with Frank Sr. was drastically different from the family life he'd known before. Frank had always idolized his father, but now, away from their quiet life in the suburbs, Frank was witnessing an entirely new side of his dad. In the city, Frank's father spent most of his time outside of the office in bars, drinking with various business partners throughout Manhattan. Under his father's care, Frank Jr. saw a whole different view on the world. Now, instead of living a sheltered suburban life, Frank was interacting with all kinds of colorful characters. He realized that life wasn't as black and white as he'd previously been told. Rules could be bent, or even broken, and everything was available to him, so long as he wanted it enough. Inspired by this new, amoral perspective, before long, Frank began shoplifting and playing hooky from school. As Frank continued acting out, he fell in with a bad crowd from school. At first, his new friends engaged in mostly harmless behavior, stealing a pack of gum, cutting gym class. But as they continued getting away with small crimes they grew more reckless, until one day, the group was caught stealing a car. Frank was just 14. Frank's father was able to intervene and expunge the arrest from his permanent record. The close call was enough to put Frank back on the straight and narrow, at least for a while. The young teen got a part-time job to stay busy after school and his father bought him an old Ford so he could commute easily. But when he turned 15, Frank's interest in women flourished. Unfortunately, his modest income couldn't support an active dating life. So he started looking for other ways to make some quick cash. To help loosen his tight budget, Frank begged his father for a gas card that would essentially act as a credit card for gas station purchases. He couldn't apply for one under his own name because, at 15, he was underage. Frank Sr. agreed, on the condition, that Frank Jr. would be responsible for the bill. In full, every month. Frank agreed, delighted. For the first few weeks, he used it faithfully and he was able to use the money he would have otherwise spent on gas on dates. But it wasn't long before he saw a gleaming opportunity to make a little more money on the side. The card could be used not only to purchase gas, but to buy other supplies sold at gas stations too, such as tires, windshield wipers, or even small accessories. So, in 1964, Frank came up with a clever little racket. He convinced the cashiers at the gas station to charge his father's gas card for a purchase. Then, Frank sold the item back to the cashiers at a discounted rate for cash. His co-conspirators were then able to pocket the difference in exchange for looking the other way. It was a win-win. For the first time in his life, Frank had money to throw around. He was able to go on elaborate dates with as many women as he chose, buying expensive clothes and flowers for the occasion. He also treated himself whenever he felt like it. The racket continued for three months, until the bill finally arrived through the mail. It came to a shocking total of $3,400, nearly $30,000 in today's currency. Despite his earlier insistence that Frank Jr. cover all of his charges, Frank Sr. treated the incident light-heartedly. And when Frank Jr. explained his reason for racking up such a huge sum, his father paid off the bill in full, clearing his name once again. But when Frank's mother found out about the incident, she was extremely upset by what she considered to be negligence on the part of Frank's father, She enrolled Frank in a private school for troubled boys in Port Chester, New York, while she and his father fought over his custody. The school was highly disciplined and rigorous. In his autobiography, Catch Me If You Can, Frank described the atmosphere as prison-like and oppressive. It was a far cry from the life he led with his father, and it took a heavy toll on his emotional state. But things at home weren't any easier. After his latest transgression, Frank's mother was convinced that she should have custody of Frank. But his father wasn't backing down without a fight, and the situation was only growing more fraught. Around the same time, Frank Sr. was forced to close down his stationery store. By the time Frank Jr. returned home for the summer, his father was in serious financial trouble he could no longer afford the same lavish lifestyle he once led. To make ends meet, Frank Sr. took a job working at the post office, which depressed his son immensely. Between his father's downfall and his parents' bitter war over his custody, Frank Jr. found his new circumstances at home to be unbearable. And in June of 1964, when he was just 16 years old, he dropped out of school and ran away to New York City. He had no job, no plan and no prospects. Just a savings account with $200 stocked away. About $1,700 today. But, despite the odds against him, Frank was about to find a way to bend the rules in his favor. Coming up, Frank stumbles on the inspiration for his first major con in the heart of New York City. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's bachelorette bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices In the summer of 1964, 16-year-old Frank Abagnale ran away from home to New York City with little money and no plan. And while he was able to find a place to stay, he only had enough money to sustain him for a few weeks. His only goal was to be a success, like his father had been just a couple of years prior. But Frank's status as a high school dropout, in addition to his young age, made this a tall order he was able to find a minimum wage job that paid just $1.50 an hour, or $60 a week. But the meager amount was barely enough to cover his rent, even at New York's lowest prices. Frank realized that if he didn't want to return to his parents, he needed to find a solution, and quick. So, believing that his young age was holding him back, he decided to commit his first real act of fraud he adjusted his driver's license with a fine-tipped pen, changing his year of birth from 1948 to 1938. He hoped that a 26-year-old might have an easier time finding work than a 16-year-old. Luckily, his hair was turning prematurely grey, making him look older than he really was. So the lie was easy to believe. But even adding a full decade to his age only bumped his hourly wage up to $2.75. To cover the difference, he cashed cheques from his savings account. But while he did this, he realized that the process had a loophole. He could use a cheque as real money despite the fact that it took the bank several days to verify that his account had enough funds for the purchase. In financial terms, the process was called check floating. Essentially, it allowed him to write checks for money he didn't have and get away with it for a period of time. Frank knew that his account was overdrawn, but his checks kept clearing. Instead of panicking over the sorry state of his finances, he felt as if a burden had lifted from his chest. Suddenly, He was 16 years old, with access to all the money he could ever want. With this new source of income, he could lead a far more comfortable life than with his minimum wage job. So, he decided to quit and live off the bad checks he kept writing, taking advantage of the opportunity to live the lavish lifestyle he'd so desperately wanted. He went to fancy restaurants and drank the most expensive liquor. Two months went by, with no repercussions. But Frank knew that it wouldn't be long until the hammer came crashing down. As long as he avoided the people he wrote bad checks to, he figured he'd remain more or less safe. But he knew his bank would have an easier time tracking him down. Eventually, they'd close his account. Moreover, he was still a runaway in the eyes of the law. With his parents just a city away in Westchester, it was only a matter of time before they would find him. And for Frank, going home wasn't an option. He had to get out of New York. It was right around this time that he passed the Commodore Hotel, a luxurious building in midtown Manhattan. As he walked by, a flight crew from Eastern Airlines emerged from its gold-trimmed doors, laughing as the doormen ushered the group into a waiting cab. In their crisp uniforms, they were treated with a deference that immediately made Frank envious. He watched the ease with which they were able to cash their checks at the concierge desk, a privilege, he learned, almost exclusively reserved for flight crew. That's when he came up with an idea that would both allow him to skip town and draw on a new source of income. What if he became an airline pilot? It was a prestigious job that would give him easy access to transportation as well as a uniform that commanded respect wherever he went. And he didn't need to go through the flight academy. All he needed to do was look the part. He was already pretending to be 10 years older than he really was. The rest was just window dressing. Frank knew that he had to get all the details right, starting with the uniform. He called the Pan Am switchboard posing as a pilot named Robert Black. Nervous, he explained that he had lost his uniform and asked the operator where he could get a replacement. As it turned out, Frank had no reason to feel antsy. The operator directed him to a uniform specialist in New York without a second thought and wished him a pleasant flight. Frank had a phony check prepared just for the occasion, but all the clerk asked for was his employee account. On the spot, Frank said the first five numbers that came to mind, and the clerk wrote them down to bill Pan Am later. By the time he realized that the account was fake, Frank was long gone uniform in hand. The next step was getting an identification badge as well as a pilot's license. Frank didn't know what a real pilot's ID card looked like, but that was a minor hurdle. He found the address of a business specializing in identification cards and securities and scheduled an appointment. He dressed in his finest suit for the interview posing as a representative from a small international airline that was expanding into the United States. He explained that he needed professional identification cards made for all of his employees. He then asked for a sample ID card to be drawn up, specifically like the ones issued by Pan Am, using himself as the subject. Frank gave them the pseudonym Frank Williams for the ID, posing as a co-pilot. The company didn't bat an eye at his request and happily obliged. But the ID card that Frank walked out with was missing one crucial detail. The Pan Am logo. As Frank walked through the streets of New York trying to figure out how to replicate the famous emblem, he happened to pass a toy shop. Inside the store window were model airplanes from all the most famous airlines at the time, including Pan Am. Frank bought the plane set and used the sticker decal inside to complete his new ID card. The resulting document was incredibly realistic. He followed a similar process to get an authentic FAA license, certifying him as a trained United States pilot. Less than a month after he'd settled on this new venture, Frank looked like a professional pilot but he still knew nothing about the business, the jargon, or even how the equipment itself operated. So, relying once again on the handy Pan Am switchboard, Frank posed as a high school reporter writing an article on the airline business. Using this trick, he was able to talk to a captain. The pilot was happy to answer all of the earnest Young reporter's questions, even some of the more unorthodox ones, including how much pilots made, how prospective candidates climbed the ladder, and whether it was true that pilots could fly for free. The captain explained the process of deadheading. It was a courtesy that airlines offered flight crews from their competitors to ensure that planes from all airlines had the right staff in the right cities at the right time it was exactly the information Frank could use to get out of town quickly. Armed with his newfound knowledge of the airline industry, as well as his freshly tailored uniform, Frank decided it was time for a test run. 16-year-old Frank entered LaGuardia Airport in the fall of 1964, emboldened by the confidence that his new clothes granted him. He showed his ID to the security desk, then tried to blend in with the crowds of people. That day, his only goal was to see if he could pull off the disguise. As he sat down for a bite to eat, Frank was joined by a TWA co-pilot. The man looked at him inquisitively and asked what a Pan Am pilot was doing at LaGuardia. Apparently, despite all the research he'd done, Frank had forgotten one of the most basic details. What airports Pan Am pilots flew out of. Frank gulped and quickly made up an answer, explaining that he had to deadhead a last-minute flight from Frisco and was en route to his final destination out of JFK. The TWA pilot gave him a weird look, then asked him what equipment he was on. Frank froze. He had no clue what the man meant, but based on his demeanour it was a common question that any pilot should have been able to answer. Frank at a loss explained that he was on General Electric. It was the wrong answer. He waited breathlessly as the TWA pilot left without another word. Fearing that the gig was up Frank rushed out of the airport before he could be dragged out by security. After this close call, Frank decided that he needed to spend more time practicing before he boarded his first plane. He started hanging out in his uniform at LaGuardia, deliberately avoiding JFK so as to avoid bumping into real Pan Am pilots who would see through his facade. Frank chatted with the other flight crew for several weeks He made sure to write down every tidbit he learned in a small notebook that he carried everywhere. And slowly, but surely, he incorporated their lingo into his speech and acclimated himself with their daily routine. Once he felt confident in his abilities, Frank packed up all his belongings, moved out of his apartment and swallowed his nerves. Finally, he was going to deadhead his first flight. He decided to go to Miami. Once he landed, Frank was offered every courtesy that a real Pan Am pilot would have received, including a free taxi to the local hotel used by all airlines. At the hotel, he was able to charge his room fees and all his meals to Pan Am. All he needed to provide a return was his employee account number, the same number that his uniform was supposedly charged to. But the benefit that Frank was most excited about was the ability to cash checks at any airport or hotel desk. In the 1960s, most checks had to be deposited at the same bank that managed your account. But because of how often pilots travelled, they were offered the courtesy of being able to process their payment in more convenient locations. Once again, Frank was able to float. He received the money from his fake cheque immediately, but by the time the hotel or airport realized it had bounced, he had already hopped on a flight to another city. The system was highly efficient. As long as Frank avoided hitting the same cities or hotels twice, he was able to avoid any repercussions. He deliberately only cashed out relatively small amounts, no more than $100 each time, or about $860 today. If he was reported to the police, lower amounts would remain relatively low on their list of priorities to investigate. Otherwise, they may have been inclined to pursue him more aggressively. Over the next two years, Frank flew constantly, making a temporary home whenever he landed. He always posed as an off-duty pilot about to catch a flight, but never attempted to actually learn how to fly. In some cases, the captains he flew with offered him a seat in the cockpit, but Frank was always careful to switch on the autopilot. At first, Frank worried about being caught. But as months passed without a single close call, he started growing more confident. Before long, he started enjoying the lifestyle. He'd always been charismatic, and as a result, he made fast friends with his fellow pilots. But he paid closer attention to the stewardesses and every once in a while usually when he was running low on checks he would stay with one of the generous flight attendants for a few weeks time part of frank's success can be attributed to a psychological phenomenon known as the status enhancement theory this idea states that people who are overly confident in their abilities actually go on to achieve higher status because their self-assuredness affects people's perceptions of them. In other words, fake it until you make it is actually legitimate advice. This phenomenon is especially successful when other people can't accurately perceive whether or not your confidence is justified. In Frank's case, he acted as a confident co-pilot, even when he wasn't asked to sit in the cockpit. And so, The colleagues he interacted with had no reason to doubt his flying abilities or the authenticity of his cover story. But even though he managed to fool his fellow flight crew, Frank's movements through the sky didn't go entirely unnoticed. Over the first couple months of his con, Pan Am had received a string of complaints about a pilot cashing bad checks. As a pattern began to emerge, Pan Am realized that the unknown pilot was committing consistent small-time fraud. They informed the FBI. But they didn't know any details about the man defrauding them. He traveled so often that they couldn't find a home address, any accomplices, or even relatives that might know his whereabouts. They didn't even know the name of the man they were looking for. The warrant for his arrest listed him as a John Doe. But after two years, they had a solid lead. Namely, the pseudonym that kept popping up on many phony checks. Frank Williams. The 18-year-old con man couldn't outrun the authorities forever. Finally, in 1967, the police were able to track Frank Williams down. A flight from New Orleans to Miami listed him as deadheading in the jump seat. Frank was taken off the plane as soon as the jet landed and brought in for questioning by the local police. Frank stayed calm and acted outraged when the police brought him into the interrogation room. He provided all the necessary identification as well as his license, all the while carefully maintaining the facade of a bewildered, slightly annoyed professional. Then, just when Frank could see the light at the end of the tunnel, a couple of FBI agents entered the room and took over the questioning. This turn was enough to throw Frank. He had figured that people from Pan Am would catch on eventually, but he had no idea that the FBI was already on his tail. Luckily for him, the Fed seemed unsure of the original case. A file had been opened by the Bureau, but these agents didn't seem to be aware as to the reasons why. In fact, they had no reason to believe Frank was anything but an ordinary pilot. His ID and license seemed real enough to them and the impression was further helped by Frank's own annoyance. By a miraculous stroke of luck, the police had pulled Frank on a weekend. If it had been a weekday, They could have easily checked Frank Williams in the Pan Am company records, but the office was closed now. And unfortunately, they couldn't hold him over the weekend. All they could do was make a judgment call. Frank walked out of the police station with shaky hands. As soon as he could, he changed out of his pilot's uniform and bought a real ticket to Atlanta under the alias Tom Lombardi. He wasn't sticking around in Miami to see if the FBI decided to follow up on Monday. Thankfully, Frank had saved most of the cash he'd collected over the years. After his narrow escape, he could lay low. In Atlanta, Frank looked for housing and, on a whim, he listed doctor as his profession on a rental application. He decided to put his pilot days behind him. But Within a few short weeks, that seemingly innocuous decision would come back to bite him. Coming up next, Frank is roped into fabricating another profession, this time with life or death consequences. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Now, back to the story. In 1967, 18-year-old Frank Abagnale was laying low in Atlanta, Georgia, after spending two years posing as a Pan Am pilot. But a recent brush with the FBI halted his flying career in its tracks. It was the first time he'd seen the consequences of his actions up close, and the experience was enough to rattle him. In Atlanta, Frank found an apartment complex with a vacancy and moved in on the same day, paying six months' rent in cash. On his application, he listed himself as a pediatrician on sabbatical under the name Frank W. Williams. He hoped this answer would help him avoid any awkward questions about his disposable income and lack of any clear job. The complex was full of young professional people and within a few weeks, Frank was able to relax. For the first time in a long time, he felt like he had a home. Then, a knock came on the door. Frank looked through the peephole to find an unassuming older man standing on the other side. When Frank opened the door, he introduced himself as Dr. Willis Granger. Dr. Granger explained that he was also a pediatrician who just moved in downstairs. Frank could barely get in a shocked, hello, before Granger started grilling him with questions. He asked about Frank's practice and what research he was doing while on sabbatical. He also invited him to visit the hospital where he worked, not far from the complex. Frank excused himself as soon as he could and immediately panicked, believing that his cover was blown. Pretending to be a doctor around civilians was one thing, but he could never maintain the facade around an actual pediatrician. But before he could pack everything up and leave in the middle of the night, he paused. He'd grown to like it in Atlanta, and the thought of going on the run again was unappealing. He'd made himself into a pilot. How hard could it be for him to become a doctor? Psychologists refer to this outlook as a challenge mindset, otherwise known as gain orientation. This is when someone looks at a stressful situation and sees an opportunity to prove themselves, believing that they have the necessary skills to conquer said challenge. The challenge mindset is often seen in successful businessmen, athletes, other prominent members of society, and con artists. It can lead to reckless, risky behavior. This mindset governed Frank's life. Whenever he saw an obstacle in his path, he always found a way around it. And so, Frank decided on a new plan. He would learn everything he needed to know in order to pass as a pediatrician. He spent days in the library reading medical journals and standard textbooks. Then, in late 1967, just a few weeks after their first introduction, Frank finally took Dr. Granger up on his offer to visit the hospital. The 18-year-old made sure to stay away from any medical procedures, focusing solely on charming the staff. But during the visit, he established a rapport with Dr. Granger and some of the other hospital personnel, including a young nurse who he started dating. Before long, Frank became a regular visitor. Posing as the pediatrician on sabbatical, he took advantage of his free reign of the hospital by visiting the library and continuing his medical studies. Before long, he saw an opportunity to put his knowledge to the test. When a senior resident went on leave to deal with a family emergency, the hospital director called Frank into his office. At first, he was terrified He believed that the director had somehow found out about his cover. Instead, he asked Frank to step in to supervise the interns. Frank was blindsided, but the director assured Frank that he wouldn't have to perform actual medicine, just oversee the doctors as they did. Frank wasn't sure this was a challenge he could pull off, but when it came down to it, it was the hefty consultant's fee that persuaded him – $125 a day, which would be worth over $950 in 2020. For the second time in two years, Frank found himself in a highly skilled profession with nothing more than a little studying and a lot of self-confidence. And for the first few months, He was able to maintain his cover by letting the interns take charge of any new medical cases that rolled in. They didn't mind. In their eyes, the doc was giving them a chance to prove themselves. But Frank soured on the position. For one thing, the con artist hated blood. Every time he was called to the emergency room, he did whatever he could to dawdle until another doctor had time to get there and take hold of the situation. But more seriously, Frank realized that his impersonation could actually put people at risk. On one especially close call, a nurse called Frank frantic, seeking assistance for a blue baby. Thinking she was joking, he asked if there was also a green baby but the nurse didn't even register the off-comment. She went looking for another doctor instead, who could save the infant's life. Shortly after the incident, the hospital found a permanent replacement to take over the position and, coincidentally, Frank's lease on the apartment was up. He decided it was time to move on before he was brought into any more emergency rooms and had to encounter any more blood. So, in 1967, the 19-year-old Frank moved to Louisiana to stay with Diane, a stewardess he briefly dated while posing as a Pan Am pilot. Diane knew him as Robert F. Conrad, a dashing co-pilot who found his way into aerospace after finishing his law degree at Harvard. It was a white lie to impress her at the time, but unfortunately for Frank, Diane had a long memory. A few weeks after Frank moved in, she introduced him to the Assistant State District Attorney, Jason Wilcox. Wilcox immediately begged Frank to apply for a position in their offices. Talented lawyers were hard to come by, and they were desperate for good people. Not too eager to jump into yet another high-intensity profession, Frank explained that he'd never even taken the bar exam. He wasn't qualified to practice law. But Wilcox continued to press him, explaining that Frank could take the Louisiana bar with just a couple weeks of studying. Frank tried to say no, but once again, he was interested to see if he could rise to the challenge. He decided to sit for the bar. After all, there was no harm in trying. He also realized that each test came back attached with the results, allowing him to see which questions he'd gotten incorrect and why. And after two failed attempts, he finally passed the Louisiana bar exam on his third try. Frank took Wilcox up on his offer and started working as a desk assistant in the DA's office in late 1967. He wasn't asked to practice any law. Instead, he filed motions and conducted case research. For once in his life, it seemed like an almost honest gig even if his means of procuring it weren't exactly ethical. But more importantly, Frank enjoyed the prestige that came with working for the district attorney. But after about nine months, a jealous coworker realized that some of Frank's stories about Harvard Law weren't adding up and asked Wilcox to run a background check on Mr. Robert Conrad. Before he could be exposed, Frank skipped town again, heading further west. He wasn't sure what his next move would be, but he vowed to make his living honestly. After a stint as a teacher in Utah, Frank eventually ended up in Eureka, California, a small town bursting with potential, but with no immediate opportunity for a man without a real resume. As Frank's savings dwindled, he slowly found himself falling back, into old habits. And before long, he was running new creative cons that would put him at the top of the FBI's most wanted list. Thanks for listening to Con Artists. We'll be back next week with part two of Frank Abagnale's story. We'll follow the infamous conman as he becomes an expert in forging checks all over the world. We'll also learn how the FBI's dogged hunt for Frank ended with an unlikely partnership. For more information on Frank Abagnale, amongst the many sources we used, we found Frank's autobiography, Catch Me If You Can, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Con Artists, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Con Artists on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next time. Con Artist was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Anthony Valsik, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Erin Larson. This episode of Con Artist was written by Liz Dorovitsyn, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Alastair Murden.